Hi chaps, I've written a poem to kick off the podcast and I wondered if you'd give it the once over for me. A poem? Uh, okay. Let's have a look. Uh, look, I, I know we're pretty good, but just how cool are we as a team? I think scary might be overreaching a bit too. Okay, I, I could tone that opening down a bit, yeah. But nobody's actually going to fly, are they? Or uh, disappear, I hope, apart from Gav. Uh, okay, I've got that. A bit more factual accuracy, yeah. Mm. And how many actual surprises have we got? Well, not that many, but, but maybe that's part of the surprise. Yeah. And the reason we ain't seen nothing yet is because we're entirely on audio, surely? Uh, true, true. And can we really claim to be the greatest podcast in the galaxy? It's, uh, it's a big claim. Greatest Doctor Who related podcast? Uh, there's quite a lot of those too. Hmm. Just a moment. Okay. Version two. Here goes. Now welcome folks, I'll try to be fast. We're at the start of a lengthy podcast. The contributors are pleasant and know their stuff, so some facts are borrowed and some facts are duff. Full of chat of all kinds, from their hats to their shoes, expect time to fly and disappearing blues. There's the odd surprise for the listener at the ninth most popular TV review podcast in the UK on one day when no one else was releasing anything much. Oh yeah, with no visual content, I'm prepared to bet whatever you heard before, you ain't seen nothing yet. I do wonder quite how well it scans. Hello and welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, add something borrowed, well, that rap, and make something who. Yes, it's Something Who podcast, episode 45. I'm Richard and we're back with another look at a pair of Doctor Who stories. And first up is Seventh Doctor Story, The Greatest Show in the Galaxy from season 25, and following that is Tenth Doctor Outing, Tooth and Claw from Series 2. With me tonight to discuss werewolves, among other things, are science and astronomy writer Giles. Evening. Uh, and also Big Finish author and Missing Episodes podcaster, Paul. Good evening. Among, I'm sure, many other things. Yes. <laughs> but we needn't go into that now. <laughs> Given that the first incarnation of this podcast was uh, 13 cast, uh, I wonder if we wanted to give a brief nod to the recent announcement of the worst kept secret in show business since <laughs> Frankie Howard's wig that uh, Whitaker and Chibnall are leaving Doctor Who after delivering the fewest number of episodes in the longest time since Philip <laughs> Siegel fa failed to get the go-ahead for a series following the TV movie. Ooh, Cassie. Cassie, but true. <laughs> Undeniable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, surely none of us were surprised. I mean, it, it's been rumoured for almost two years now that they were off. Indeed. I think the stronger rumours were that Jodie was off, weren't they? Mm. I think Chibnall. Yeah. Was that strongly fancied no i i had heard like the everyone seemed quite definitive that jody was off and chibnall was staying mm. so mm. i was so, yeah 
I didn't think that, that was a foregone conclusion. I, I thought there was a possibility he might pull a Moffat and cast another Doctor and save another three mm. years. So you can imagine my feelings when I heard uh, this most recent news. I you'll have to, imagine them. You'll have to imagine them. You'll have to imagine because I'm not going to say what they were. Yeah. In a yes. public forum. No, no, but uh, but I think we might be able to extrapolate maybe from previous episodes mm. of this podcast. I think I yeah I I I have my usual thing whenever I hear that a doctor is leaving, which is just oh damn I wish I could have seen him under another showrunner. <laughs> you know, it's um yeah, it's it's the same. It was the same with Capaldi. It was the same mm. with yeah. I guess the same with Tennant really back in the day. Yeah. Um, Goodness. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think personally, I'd agree with that. I think it would be interesting to see what would have happened with, with Jodie Whittaker with a different set of writers. But I guess we've got what we've got, mm. and, and she probably wouldn't have been cast if it hadn't been for Chibnall. So, well, who knows? I'll tell you what: we have got an ever-decreasing number of episodes, and I, uh, I think I saw you discussing this on Twitter. I was convinced that they had announced there were eight episodes in this forthcoming series. And not just that there are eight, you know, in, in this year, that have been cut down from a planned ten. They mm, dropped yes. two because of the problems of recording in, uh, you know, a coronavirus world. So it dropped from ten to eight. Somehow in this what? new announcement, it's, it's now six, and two of the eight have now been pushed back to next year. Is that what's what? supposed to have happened? I think what they announced originally was seven episodes. Oh, that's a new number. Oh, that's a new number. And, and I think that people thought that the seven episodes were the series, and then this Christmas special or New Year's special would be an eighth, and that was where the number eight came from. Whereas, mm. in fact, I think it's turned out to be six plus one equals seven. So it's six episodes in the series plus a Christmas special, and then there's another... Is it three on top of that, or two on top of that to to, to round two, things it's out? It's two on top. Yeah, I always so, had I always had the number eight in my mind, but I mm. I just can't. I'm looking without without doing some in depth research, which wouldn't be on brand for this podcast. I'd no. have to um I'd have to do a lot of digging back to actually figure out what was actually said, yeah. and it feels to me like the most likely thing is that they said they were producing they were starting production on eight stories and uh, we let us believe they let us imagine that that meant we would get all eight at the same time was they actually yes, yeah. only ever planned six and two yes and the best guess possibly. is that they've added an extra one now that mm. it's confirmed that they need a regeneration story but even that's yeah. just a uh, supposition well there you mm. go what fun and then yeah, well, sh- it, shades, one... shades of more Doctor Who than ever before oh yeah yes. and very you're not yes. gonna, you're not going to reduce a show like that quite in the its, opposite in fact or whatever. in its <laughs> anniversary year Yes, it's exactly yeah. ten years since we had mm. that Paraga, and now we're in an even weirder position because we'll have no showrunner going mm. into the 60th anniversary year. So there's no guarantee we'll get anything. Capaldi's just said that he's not going to be in it because he mm. hates multi-doctor <laughs> stories. <laughs> Let's raise a glass. There's so much to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Big finish. We'll have to get you out of retirement to do something, Paul. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well. So. 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 After that, I mean, we we do specialist specialize in the lukewarm take, and I think that certainly <laughs> probably fits into, into that particular category. But yes, um, if anyone yeah. out there has heard a worse take on a podcast, please. Send us details <laughs> so. Okay. Well, moving along, the first story today we wanted to look at was Greatest Show in the Galaxy, 
which mm. is written by uh, Steve, well, which was written by Stephen Wyatt and directed by Alan Waring, uh, also of Ghost Light and Survival fame. Mm. Personally, this dates from an era when, astonishingly enough, Doctor Who was no longer the largest thing in my life. I was, I think, 20, 21, I think, just as this story aired and at university. Although I, get, although I was still watching Doctor Who on a regular basis, instead of being you know, an utter obsessive, it was kind of something that I fitted in here and there. But my memories, you know, I mean, na- naturally this being something who... I watched Greatest Show in the Galaxy in 1988, and I mean I might have watched it once since then, but certainly no more than that. So I am—I I was living on memories until I saw it again this week. But my memory was it was—it was a pretty—it was a high spot in this season. I mean, certainly the Dalek one that kicked things off was pretty impressive as well. But I—I I, I recall that um, I was definitely enthusiastic about watching this one at, at the end of the season. Any any memories from the pair of you? Uh, I was always very fond of it. I watched it a lot at the time, because, for that reason. <laughs> yeah. I never really regretted Doctor Who the first time round because even though I was not quite of your advanced years, some might <laughs> some might have said I should have moved on to other pursuits, but I, I hadn't. Um, yeah. I've wobbled a bit the previous year, and like everybody else, I suppose, except people who liked season 24. <laughs> that, was fair of me. that was very fair <laughs> of me to include them, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, like everyone else, I was anxiously watching this new series because it was heard that there was a changing tone and mm. and then Remember the Daleks seemed like a completely different program then Happiness Patrol didn't again and then Silver Nemesis seemed like Remembrance of the Daleks but not as good and then <laughs> we finished on a high point we finished with Greatest Show, we weren't supposed to we're not going to mention Ace's badge but <laughs> anyway, Greatest Show taking us through Christmas and the New Year terrific stuff I came away... I think I'm particularly impressed with Alan Waring at the time. I would bore everybody in the Doctor Who Dover group with my explanations of just why he was such a superb director and the, the new Graham Harper. Nobody mm. believed me. But I was mm. delighted when he came back the next year. I would have, mm. you know, I would have had him on the short list of people who might have might have been able to make a return in the 21st century, but his career seems to have taken him just down the route of uh, endless soap opera. So, you know, I'm mm. glad he's I'm sure he's glad he's still working and I would <laughs> Crunch him that. That's nice of me, isn't it? I'm taking some <laughs> rum stuff tonight. <laughs> I need to get some coffee inside me. Anyway, it's uh, it's terrific, isn't it? And um, I'm probably come round to comparing it to Paradise Towers because that, I guess, um, I guess that was a story that I thought didn't quite fulfil its potential in season 24. But I was interested to see what else Stephen Wyatt might do. Mm. And mm. shall I come back to that later? Because Giles hasn't said anything yet. Yeah. Okay. I haven't, have I? No, I've just been doing, doing uh, sly interjections. Yeah, I remember sort of. I think this was the last Doctor Who story I would have watched before moving away to uni. I guess, so that sort of puts it. And I remember being. It's funny the the way things worked out with regard to the the scheduling screw ups in 1988, and you know the fact they had to had to rejig everything. And yet, I just remember being thrilled. I thought, well, this is as close to a Doctor Who christmas special because of when it broadcast and it just Mm. felt like it was the right story at the right (laughs) time from that point Mm -hmm. of view i've always thought highly of it but it's never been one that i've massively come back to rewatch. i've always kind of known it was good but it's not one i'm i felt like i was over familiar with unlike stuff like remembrance maybe 
mm. and you know most of season 26 i guess which i rewatch many many times and even a couple of the season 24 ones yeah i feel that for some reason yeah i, I never just never quite rewatched it as many times so it's quite funny coming back to it now and it being a long time since i've seen it and i am um, you know so rewatching it over the last couple of nights took a bit of a refresher i was having to concentrate on hang on okay so what's the plot what's going on and how's it crikey how's it all working and i was sli- i was slightly nonplussed because i started trying to watch it with the production subtitles as is as is my usual cheat for getting a little bit of background information yeah and reminding myself and most of the production subtitles on this seem to be devoted to talking about earlier drafts with a completely different story oh. so it's very it's very odd watching watching one thing where you're actually having to try and follow the plot because you can't really remember it and seeing right. a completely different plot <laughs> um, <laughs> described, in the, described in the subtitles. You will at least be able to help me out with my questions about the about the plotting, so that's good. No, yeah, <clears> not sure about that. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, you, unless you turned them off after 15 I did. I did, I, did. I, did. I had to ah, go back after about... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, just make something up. I've read it. <laughs> yeah, I did a little reading up afterwards instead, but yes. So we we left you, Paul. I think about to to make a, a comparison. Ah, about to discourse. You'll remember my when we went when we did Paradise Towers a while back. Yeah, I, I was so impressed with the first episode. I thought, God, this is so much better. And I remember why have I mm. been on such a downer with it? And then episodes two, three, and four didn't quite live up to it. And my the way it felt to me, and I think this was borne out by the documentary on the DVD, was that he had spent a lot of time writing episode one. Stephen Wyatt, and then had been asked, called upon to extend that to four episodes, quite short notice, and mm. so it's quite remarkable that the plot hangs together as well as it does. Now this one, I had always remembered it feeling almost the opposite, like it was much less tightly plotted than Paradise Towers, and felt a bit like a difficult second album in that, rather than thinking up a very tight, coherent idea, or indeed ripping off a J.G. Ballard novel, he just thought <laughs> up lots of eccentric characters and stuffed them together into a setting you know that winding up clockwork toys and seeing what they did that's how Mm. it's always felt to me but looking at it again i don't i do wonder if it is actually slightly tighter than than paradise towers but the one thing i was going to say about it is i had this vague memory that it had been pitched as a three-part story which Mm. obviously there was a lot of it about at the time and that possibly what happened was that it was extended to four, and episode one formed the bulk of that padding. Yeah, that's, that sort of popped in, back into my head as I was watching it, and I looked out to see if it made sense, and it did make a certain amount of sense to me. So, Giles, mm. tell me, is there anything that, in that? That is my yeah, that is my limited understanding of what happened. That this was originally designed to go into one of the three episodes slots, mm-hmm. probably the studio only one that was eventually taken by. Happiness Patrol, and apparently the yeah. ori- the original brief was the original brief was a fairground rather than a circus. Uh-huh. Then they realised that it was going to be going for the three episode studio slot, so they came up with the idea, or Stephen Wyatt came up with the idea, well let's move it into a circus because we can st- stage that more easily. And then when that got switched around and they got the four episode slot, and knew they would have some location filming, they more or less bolted the front episode on to uh, have a bit more of the arrival of various characters and and a, a bit of stuff on the surface of second acts and then the f- the last three episodes were closer to what the original draft was 
which I presume would have been the, would have been them literally landing in the landing in the circus and yeah hmm. probably why we got a very rare appearance of a TARDIS scene in this era because mm, they didn't true. do anything they could to pad it out and also why mm. we have such an eccentric cliffhanger to episode one because there wasn't originally yes. one there it's Hence, bizarre isn't it shall we go in mm. Yes, we shall. And, and, the, and the very odd thing about that, so to just <laughs> the very odd thing about that is, it seems to have been edited in a very cack-handed way, just because they wanted to end on end on a line for the Doctor and companion. Right. And the thing is, if you if you were happy to if you were happy to fade out on Max and the Captain, and what's happening in the circus, you've yes, got a perfectly good screams, yeah. cliffhanger there, and you're thinking, oh, what's going on, and so on, and, and then you have that weird. Cut back to the Doctor and Ice, just to give hmm. them the last line. Is that still a J&T mandate in this era? He's relaxed slightly from the season 23 uh, may, uh, maybe position is, yeah. where everything has to end on a crash zoom of Colin Baker, but mm. we still have to actually have the Doctor. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe, that, maybe that is the case. That that's good. I think that's that leaves us with... I think it works very nicely, and it, it's a very eccentric first episode. Hmm. Not something you would. I don't think you would structure a story like this if you were doing it from scratch. But it, but it works extremely nicely. And what it does, mm. it gives the story quite a slow burn, quite a slow build up. Mm. Although there's a lot of comedy in the first episode, you know, it's, it's interspersed with with mystery, mm-hmm. and with um, a rising sense that there's something sinister lurking in the background. All these three things work together and and mm. play on each other, so that where you would have quite a. I don't, be quite a cold open wouldn't it um starting with episode two where they just arrived come in hmm. everybody else is already there i mean i don't want to get too bogged down in the details but I said most of them would already be in that cage wouldn't they because they'd already arrived so you know hmm. meeting all those characters means we've know a bit more about them feel they're cartoony they're larger than life so it helps hmm. that we've seen met them known them for longer because then yes. we have a chance of actually feeling something when they get hmm. slaughtered one by yes. one Whereas if, if they had, you know, mm. correspondingly less screen time. Yeah. A lot of the captain's funny lines are in episode one, aren't they? A lot of his... Mm. Yeah. It never gets old for me, his amusing reminiscences about obscure mm. places. I think he was the main character they added. Right. He was, he was a quite well, late addition. But that's odd, because he actually ends up having quite a bearing mm, on the plot he, in episodes two, three, and four. Yeah. Mm. I think Wizkid might have had something more to do, if I, if I recall correctly, from the... Right. There was talk because apparently the the original idea, I mean, it almost sounds a bit toy ish They were in the in the ring and competing with each other for right. who for who would survive. Mm-hmm. And Wizkid was apparently like a gaming nerd. More than anything, he was a he was a fanboy for the circus and knew, which makes sense of the name. Uh, that he was he knew more about the the workings and all the games and things oh, that I would. See. The challenges and things that you might experience in the circus, right? And so he he was he was probably a bit more of a know-it-all in that sense, and then That's he sort of took took that away, possibly put that onto Captain Cook, right? And then had the idea of okay, well let's keep the irritating kid character and turn him into a pastiche mm. Doctor Who fan. Mm. It's it's interesting. I, I mean, I've written at the end of episode one, you know, riffing off your thoughts, Paul. That I've said it's. It's quite perplexing that there seem to be lots of set pieces, but nothing's yet bringing them all together. Mm. But I mean, but I mean, clearly, later in the story, all those bits are tied together, and some of that, some of that knowledge that you get in the first episode helps mm. with the understanding mm. later on. But just just as you're watching it at the end of part one, you're thinking, 
well, there's you know there's lots of stuff that's happened there, but I'm just not quite sure how it, how it's all coming together. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's quite close to being something I disliked in season twenty two. All those which was apparently a side effect of being forced to do these two 45-minute episode format. Mm. I say apparently because Eric Sayward seemed to think that it meant that you had to spend the whole the first episode with the Doctor and Perry on their way to meet the plot yeah. so that they would only have any bearing on it in the second half. Um, mm. So, you know, it's, it's in danger of falling into that, but they aren't just wandering around aimlessly. They aren't. And they are interacting with all the characters that we will meet later yeah. on. So it's not in any way... Yeah, it's just much better done. Mm-hmm. It's it's fascinating. I would be interested in that it would have been a very tight three-parter, but I think this is better. Mm. So it's an interesting evolution on the production side that it might have originally been a, th- a completely studio-bound story, and then it turned yeah. into a, one of the traditional mixes of studio and OB. And it ended up being one of the first examples of something that they did quite a lot the next series, which is... A mixture of in, you know, interiors and exteriors, but all done on location, like Curse of Femric. Is that right? Is it fair to say? When I say location, I'm including the fact yes. that yeah. <laughs> all the interiors yeah. were in a tent. A tent within a tent in a car park. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so it's like it ended up an accidental trial run for that sort of process. Yeah. And as mm-hmm. everybody said at the time, it helps the atmosphere because it just looks different and weird. Um, not necessarily better. I mean, it must have been a pain in the ass to um, not have the control level of control you would have in a proper studio but um it all adds to its uniqueness i think I, yeah i think that i think all the the behind the scenes stuff not so much the, the actual circus ring feels we'd probably have had something similar to that if they'd had the studio set up but i, I think all the when they're running down the corridors i suspect mm. i suspect the corridors would have been rather more corridor like instead of yeah instead of all the billowing billowing tents you know yeah. fabric and everything yeah. like that which does Definitely does give it a certain something. It adds to the atmosphere, and the whole story for My Money has a lot of atmosphere. Mm. Um, Mark Eyre's music helps enormously, mm. and the direction helps. Mm. I, I won't say it looks like a million dollars because it's on videotape, so mm. it, it's always going to be slightly encumbered by that. But Alan Waring, more than most other people in this OB video era, is that it seems to be able to use the cameras as if they were film cameras. There's some, mm. Very interesting mm. stuff with uh, focal lengths. <laughs> here I go mm. again. Me and my fo- <laughs> focal lengths. Good job Gav's not here to <laughs> ask me to explain exactly what I mean. But then I think he used them like like mm. they were film, and I think I know what I mean by that. Mm. Don't yeah, the, me too the, closely. The sort of actual location, the location work that's meant to be location work. Yeah. In particular, looks very good indeed. I think, and they must have been blessed uh, with good weather. Hmm. Well, a slightly random thing I thought there were uh, the editing seemed to jump out at me um, I guess in a way that a lot of stories in this era do but once you're looking for it and in fact you don't even have to be looking for it there a lot of scenes end quite abruptly and you, mm. you just feel oh they've cut a bit off there so I'm assuming that when we get it on Blu-ray we'll have an extended nice long extended version like they managed to do for every season 24 story mm. I'm assuming that we didn't get in much, much of that on uh, DVD did we I guess we got some deleted scenes I'm never very good at remembering deleted scenes when they're separate. I just I like to see them back in context, and of course, that's where extended scenes come into their own. Yes, I think you know, me being me, I don't think I've I've got the DVD, which probably explains mm. why I'm looking a bit blank. Now I I've got a feeling it's going to be one of those stories where it will help with the pacing. Mm. I'm not that I think 
stuff extraordinarily. It's not one of those ones like Fenric, obviously, mm. which um, does turn into a different beast when it's edited that heavily. But I, I think it'll mm. it'll help. Good. Mm. I look forward to that. I think it's one where they've they've done really well with the the, the imagery. I mean the the clowns genuinely look quite grotesque, you know, mm. and 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 creepy. Well, I, I mean, beautiful, I suppose, I suppose as well. You've you've got that sort of strange image of the clowns in a hearse mm. and the kites in episode one, and, and it, uh, you, you can't yes. really w- work out what's going on with that to start off with. But but it, you know, it, they're all very strong images. Is that mm. a completely original image, a clown in a hearse? I mean, it ah. is to, it's new to me, but uh, yeah. I'm just wondering. Well, you know what occurred to me when I was watching it this time. Go I on. instantly, I instantly went. I suddenly thought it's the prisoner. Yeah, because oh, right. we've got all sorts of sort of. It's it's very prisoner esque, and obviously in the in the titles of that you've got the hearse at the start. Yes. When McGowan gets gassed in the in the in the opening credits that go on for five minutes and um, before he gets <laughs> before he gets kidnapped. Yeah. And the kites are the equivalent of a rover. Yeah. I sort of think with the whole thing of them running through the running across the desert trying to get to the bus mm. I just, it, it struck me that that first couple of minutes I thought oh yeah hang on are they channeling the prisoner here but yeah mm. very effective and Ian Reddington is marvellously he is sinister I, isn't he I seem to remember he went down very well at the time it's mm. a very good cast but he stands out because he thinks of some a very original and daring way of playing this character mm. Mm. I shall move on I think to talking about the yeah. the I've got here the baddies, because mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a, as such a sophisticated writer, I, um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a column for goodies and a column for baddies. But uh, they are a collective here. There's not one single chief villain. There is a chief clown, mm-hmm. like a chief caretaker, but he isn't the chief villain. They are. They often have the ringmaster, the the uh, the chief clown, and Morgana, the crystal ball lady, often sit, yeah. have these three-way discussions. Which is unusual for Doctor Who, and indeed this genre. I mean, none of them, no one, one of them seems to be in charge, and the, and the balance of power shifts in the course of these discussions. Hmm. And it's not, it's not careless writing; it's deliberate. Well, a because none of them are lit, strictly speaking, the villains. They are being used by the nebulous forces that turn out to be the gods of Ragnarok. But more hmm. particularly, the fact that these villains are a collective. I say this deliberately because, of course. That leads me on to the point that, in generally, the psychic circus is some sort of riff on and satire of the hippie ideal, yeah. the um, yeah. the hangover after the collapse of the '60s daydream. Now, has anyone got anything exciting to say about that? I was watching it again, knowing that mm. that's where he started from, mm. trying to work out mm. if there's actually a moral or a message or a point, or if mm. it's just a starting point, but then it turns into a Doctor Who story and it's not actually, because of course, well, think, when how old is Stephen Bryant? This is the other, you know, because that occurred to me that I thought, I mean, famously, yes, as you say, there's this, this is the thing that it's a hippie story. Well, I think he was a bit older than the other writers of that era, mm. actually. He was, at the time, he was pushing 40. Right. right. Which, of course, does not seem like a, a great age to me now. But, mm. No. But he was born in 1948, he, 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 so he lived through Okay, that. so that's old yes, enough to have actually did. lived through it and, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes that makes more sense because you know part of, part of it to me, I'm almost making. I was bored when looking back at it and thinking, hang on, is this about is this about the rave scene? But then yeah. I think, well, no, hang on, rave didn't well, yeah. really kick off until the early nineties. It's still still ready to come. Yeah, and that history repeating itself to some extent, I guess. 
definitely that there's an there's an aspect of that and there's a sense perhaps in which you, you, you sort of get two stories don't you? you you get the sense in which they've given up going around the galaxy and they're just in one place and mm. it, it, there's, there's the, the kind of uh, maybe a bit of ennui or whatever but then you've also got this kind of you know ancient evil kind of at the center of it as well and it's mm. not entirely clear whether they've got bored and and, and given up and, and sort of resting on their laurels Mm, and yeah. then it comes, or whether it's the other way around, whether whether they come here sort of still full of joy and enthusiasm, and it mm. kind of pulls it apart. Is it setting out to the man, man? Yeah. Yeah. What exactly? What I was wondering is, it, are the gods of Ragnarok a metaphor for something? Because it doesn't mm. appear to be the the oft-told story of the idealistic '60s hippies who become the '80s capitalists and and go mm. you know, do a complete 180. But it it just doesn't really fit as a metaphor. It breaks if you try and. The gods of Ragnarok, for their part, have a fairly simple rationale. They just want entertainment, don't they? Mm. Mm. They thrive on entertainment, and they kill if they're not entertained. They thrive on killing. Mm. So it doesn't really fit. Which is possibly the weak spot in the story, the fact that that side of it comes in at the last minute and doesn't thematically fit quite as well. Mm. Yeah, as evidenced I mean, by the fact that the name doesn't really fit. They, they've just plucked yes. Ragnarok from, some, from somewhere and... Mm. Uh, not really done it justice but that's a different matter yeah i mean I, I guess that's what frustrated me at the time you know when it was first shown is that it's presented as being oh it's the gods of ragnarok as if it's a bit like oh you know that bloke's actually the master in disguise or whatever mm. as you know mm. as if the gods of ragnarok are you know, come along every couple of years and, and, and we'd be expecting to see them and certainly you know there's one or two lines of sylvester's that kind of make it feel as if Oh yeah, well I've been fighting this lot, you know, all, all through mm. time. It, it's it's one of those classic Starsky and Hutch things where they sort of bring someone on and you, they try and pretend that they've had got a backstory, <laughs> but somehow, uh, it, it, you know, you, you've you've certainly never seen them before, and and you have some difficulty believing that they've ever seen them before either. Mm. Yes, and and I think also it kind of implies that the people watching it are supposed to know who the gods of Ragnarok are as well, and perhaps there was a, there was a sort of niche element of the audience who would but certainly as a as a 21 year old hmm. doctor who fan it didn't really mean anything much to me you know from mythology either so i'm just left with something that you know that, that i have to take on its own terms now i mean, I mean it doesn't i mean I, you know you can still understand that then in the context of the story it's not like the story falls apart but it's just this sense of oh you know, look who these baddies are but but, they, but precisely who are I they i think it's just I don't think it was entirely Stephen White. I think that was something that was in the air at the time. I can't remember yes. exactly the details, but I think it was something Cartman was actually encouraging his writers to think about. Yeah. Coming being a big comic book fan, he was trying to make the whole program seem mythological. Hmm. And sometimes that meant using the series established mythology, and sometimes that meant adding to it. And you know, sometimes inventing a whole new mythology out of a whole cloth. So this was an example of that. And yes, it probably would have been better if it had been something we knew. They did the same with Fenric, but, yeah, indeed. but tried a bit harder with that by retroactively <laughs> retconning it back yes. through Silver Nemesis and on to Dragonfire, which, you know, isn't entirely successful, I've said, but it was no worse than um, things like Russell making up Bad Wolf as he was yeah. going along and then mm. hoping or, we wouldn't look too the, closely uh, at <coughs> Timeless Child, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's very odd that, the, yeah, the, the way that whole thing is handled, because the because Sylvester's first line when he arrives there, it's the gods of Ragnarok, I presume. So you mm, think, okay, yes, this is the first true. time. 
Yeah, so you, you get that, and then you get all the stuff that indicates he's familiar with them. He's, I have fought yeah. the gods of Renark all through time, he says. Presumably without but, having ever met them. Yes, through their agents. <laughs> Which is, well, I mean, it's... you know, it's, it should give us a lot of scope for prequels, mm. but um, mm. apparently mm. it hasn't. We, there is one bit that doesn't quite make sense. He, um, several times leading up to that, well, no, twice, actually. It might have been in episodes two and three, or maybe even three and four, but twice he says something like, things are getting out of control quicker than I imagined. Now, mm. the second time he says that, it is in the mm. build is the run-up to um, it all kicking off, and it makes some sort of sense. But the first mm. time, he, said, he looks into a ball, says things are getting out of control quicker than I imagined, mm. and moves on. And, but with hindsight, it doesn't mean anything. Nothing was getting out of control. There's no... Yeah. He doesn't know what's... He, with hindsight, he clearly didn't know what was going on at that point at all. What the hell was he talking about? It just looks like a placeholder line to make the Doctor look knowledgeable and mysterious, which mm. sticks out a bit. And then doesn't Ace have a line at the end about it was your game all along or something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, like a, a Is that foremost... here? I, I'm pretty sure I I'll, remember I'll there being something it. like that. I'm, now you've got me wondering. But... Hmm. Well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, like there's some something. I'm sure there's something that indicates that somebody's gone through and tried to put a sheen of the uh, Cartmel Master Plan style stuff over the top yeah. of it. I think is what's happened. Well, I mean, we get that. So, so I mean, I'd forgotten watching it this time round that you get the whole sort of ancient evil in the heart of the circus tent thing actually back in part two. So quite early on, mm. you know the 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 well and the eye and all of that sort of thing. So so, you, so I suppose you do get yes, fairly yes. early on the sense that there's something more than meets the yeah. eye to it. Yes, I shouldn't complain too much. You're right. There is clearly something, yeah, old and made of stone <laughs> there, mm. which is what we get, so that's fine. Yeah, but 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 I mean, at that stage, it's very hard to, to work out how that's going to... Um, there are, out, yeah. there are two things I'm not 100% sold on about that. the last 15 minutes. It's partly the the pull of the Gods of Ragnarok, but partly because they, um, they're so enjoying Sylvester's magic tricks that they <laughs> put them all in. And so even when they're you yes. know desperately trying to cut the episode down for length, they leave all of that. <laughs> so again, I think, I think maybe episode four will be the one that surprises us when, yes. when we get the extended version. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yes, it's when just after the, after the circus blows up, and the doctor's mm -hmm. walking away from the tent, right to to them to them outside, and, he's, and he says enjoying the show, Ace, and she says, "Yeah, it was your show all along, wasn't it?" And he lets her believe that, even though it's Which, clearly again not. seems to be an implication. Yeah, because she's got yeah. so much faith in him that she assumes he always knows what he's doing because mm -hmm. he tells her that he always does, but. Is clearly not justified on this occasion because he hasn't got the faintest idea, and he's also mm. the only person who hasn't realised that Mags is a werewolf. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Listening of unsubtle hints that mm. Captain yeah. Cook insists on giving us, winking at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's strangely uncritical all the way through part two and, and at the end of part one, isn't he? I mean, it, there's there's enough going on that make that would make you think it's. You know, it's a little bit out of the ordinary. I mean, I mean, unless he's deliberately just, you know, bumbling around mm. uh, because he's already he, and he is already aware that it's a problem, but he's he's trying to put people off their guard by not appearing to to understand that it's there's trickery. But yeah, it it, it mm. does seem a bit bizarre that um, he's quite as wide-eyed as he is. Two points I'm going to make. One one of which is just 
it's kind of disconnected, but just in, in regards to the to the gods of Ragnarok's shtick, it's it struck me that there's a certain resemblance to the god complex here. Mm-hmm. In its thing, and okay, you know, the, we know the Minotaur wants to be worshipped, but you've got some some similarity there, I guess. Yeah. But the the other thing, just structurally within this one, I was thinking it's it's actually it is quite a nice trick. We're used to the occasional Greek chorus characters in Doctor Who, <laughs> you know, and it's it's quite a nice little trick that we get these apparently inconsequential characters yeah. in the audience that we think are just running a you know offering us yeah. a bit of a little running commentary Greek chorus thing, and then they turn out to be the actual organising minds and you know main villains of the piece. I think that's yeah. quite a neat trick that I've not seen pulled before. Hmm. Yeah, the, there's the tension that they, they they sort of come up with the we're all bored line and the something has to happen soon, and you think this is a bit near to the knuckle mm. you know, as far <laughs> as Doctor Who's concerned. But but I mean you know it, it, it's I guess it's fine. It stays the right side of it. It's not quite as as on the nose as some of that stuff in se- season twenty three when um, Michael Jaston is sort of going on about. Uh, the, the story's boring, or can we not move on? To <laughs> yes, the next bit yeah. I was oddly reminded of of the way that the little girl in Rumors of the Daleks turns out to be the bath hmm. computer, hmm. Uh, and I don't know why I was reminded of that because I'll give Stephen White the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it felt like the sort of thing where he, possibly he wrote in these characters and then decided, oh, I know what I could do. I can make them the villains. Now, I'm hmm. not saying that I think that is what happened, but it's fun because it feels like it possibly could be. <laughs> I'm now going to say that I think Sylvester McCoy is very, very good in this, and it's one of his—I think it's one of his best performances for me. I, he barely puts a foot wrong. Hmm. It's very funny, very, very sharp on his lines. I think it really plays to his strengths. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it's right in the in the middle. He, he's still doing some of the stuff from season twenty-four of of you know sort of being chuckly and whimsical and whatever and and, and he, you know there's less this sense of of ancient knowledge from the dawn of time i mean obviously there's a little bit of that right at the very end mm. but it it, it it does feel a little bit lighter than some of the stories in in season 26 when it feels like he's mm. he's, he, he's having to be in control the whole time yeah. and, and, and be this bigger character which, yeah which doesn't necessarily play to his strength i think there's a really a nice balance yeah. of the two yeah. here yeah what you were saying about the, the doctor's character earlier his naive enthusiasm for an obsession with the getting to the circus reminds me a bit of Mel Mel's obsession yes, with the swimming pool yeah. in Paradise mm. Tower, actually. Oh yes, but yeah, mm. much true. much less bizarre and egregious. <laughs> it's, mm. it's quite charming, mm. but it is difficult to figure out at what point this genuine Sherlock enthusiasm for the circus turns into him apparently knowing exactly what's going on all along. I mm. don't think it bears examination too closely. I just think it's great fun to watch. Mm. So, Deadbeat, the LSD casualty, hmm, is the one yeah. who ends up being restored to mental health and he's going to take the circus back to its roots at the end. Where does that fit into our metaphor? Uh. Well, I mean, it could be, of course, that, that, that he is going to turn out to be the 1980s capitalist, in, in that although he, he sort oh. of wants it to return to its roots, is it may be that... Yeah. Is he going to exploit Mags or is he genuinely going to make her part of the new collective new commune i think it's a lovely sentiment that at the end it does seem to me to be slightly flying in the face of the fact that all of his mates have been slaughtered in the previous <laughs> you know, hour or so yep. and you know that, that he's got quite such enthusiasm for, for for kicking things off again but it, but i mean you know l- l- let's be optimistic and hope that that's indeed what happens good mm. 
I suppose we're getting into link territory now, but it, it, later on we're going to see that the uh, the diamond becomes a, a sort of important part of the battle against the um, the villain or the, oh, or the the monster of the piece. And here we've got this cent- centerpiece of the medallion that's gone missing that they find in the bus, and then that becomes the weapon as well. So oh. in both cases we've got this kind of seemingly extraneous thing that's, that's <laughs> put together. I mean, you know, I look for patterns in things. Uh, I'm not saying that in any way there's anything other than that's a sort of repeating piece of storytelling perhaps, but uh, we do have that in both of these. It's, it's funny because I was, I was honestly saying to someone earlier on, yeah, literally the only thing I can think of that links these stories is the is the superficial thing as they've both got werewolves in them. And that is actually a good point that you do have a similar motif there, don't you? I've only really got a couple of other random things I was gonna Go on then. I was gonna say. One 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 of which was with with Morgana, which is mm-hmm. uh, she's she's the least served of the of the, mm. the the sort of villain yes. trio really, but um I do like the fact that she's sort of, you know, she's obviously got some. She seems to have some reservations, and generally tries yeah. to discourage yes. everyone. Says, yep. Do you really want to? Yeah, you know. Oh no, something's going on. You don't have to go in and. Yeah, they you know, do. So all. Except in the case of Wizkid, which is just like, <laughs> go on, go on. Yes. Just, <laughs> yeah. Which yeah made me, yeah made me chuckle, and the other completely random observation. I wonder whether this is some is is another thing that's stuck in Russell's mind, because the uh, the shop where Ace is locked in with the clown, with the robot clowns, yeah, is so much the beginning of the oh, first yes. scene of Rose. God, well, yeah, <laughs> so almost you know, almost exactly. I mean, yeah, well, no, no, not almost exactly. It is exactly the that first mm, scene but, but when the start moving. Yes. <laughs> uh, See? And kind, kind of, I suppose. What's his face as well? Moffat in in the um, girl in the fireplace. You've got those sort of uh, uh, mechanical mm. creatures that sort of yeah, they're under the bed or something. But you, I mean, but I agree with you. It's it, it's a closer match for Rose. It is. Mm. Yeah, barely worth mentioning any others. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, bring back Keith Bowick. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking also, you know, poor old Wizkid. I mean, it is it, it's sort of like Adric syndrome again. You know, we mm. the, the the character is too big a fan. You know, so so we all end up despising him, despite the fact that uh, you know we we can sort of see that, that there's a there's a lot of um, of similar characteristics. Yes. I think everybody blamed John Nathan Turner for that and assumed that it was his invention and he forced Stephen White to put it in. Mm. But I also believe that that has been roundly disproved. Yeah, and that it was actually Stephen White personally who hated all Doctor Who fans. No, that's not that's <laughs> not true. <laughs> it's just a bit I mean, of fun. I should have been very offended by that. I was the right age for it at the time, but I didn't wear yeah. a sleeveless mm. pullover mm. or thick glasses, and I wasn't Adrian Mole. <laughs> I, I remember laughing quite loudly actually at, at the you know when it came out, thinking you know, it's getting getting the joke, but laughing with it and, and mm. not feeling at all offended by it. I I mean the line that stands out is, is um, although I haven't seen the early days I know yes. it's not as good as, it's a, as it yes, used exactly. to be that's the one yeah <sighs> well mm. now we have all seen them indeed yeah. so yeah. I mean, who's it, laughing now exactly <laughs> uh, 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 I mean I think I think what we've learnt is that the 
the early days were just as uh, just as bad as the later days. You know, there, there was good and bad all the way through. Yeah, there was good and bad. The Doctor is nothing if not consistently inconsistent, and that's why we love it. <laughs> if it was all yeah. good, where Unless would the fun be in that? <laughs> Anything else you wanted to say, Paul? Um, oh, Peggy Mount. Oh, oh yes. yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meant nothing to me at the time. Means not mm. not much more now. But another one of Nathan Turner's star castings. <laughs> she's quite yeah. fun. I think yes. she's good good value in that role. And it's another Stephen White's casting a lady that wouldn't be out of place in a Dickens adaptation. <laughs> so after Tabby and Tilda and the yeah you know, all the Resies and so yeah. on. Funny enough. Oh, the bus conductor, mm. a prototype Kablam man. Mm. I, yes. Perhaps. Yes. I mean, yeah, not true. obviously, in any way. It's just a coincidence. It's not even mm. the same. It's not. It's still not true in reverse. But uh, mm. <laughs> I still find it interesting. Is the is the bus meant to be the bus that they came to second acts on? Forgive me if I'm. Oh, I suppose so. Yeah. I just. Yeah, I guess. Which it means really, it has so, that kind of hippie commune bus look to it, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. I haven't really even thought about it, the fact that it must be capable of interstellar flight, but um, so was the one in Delgen, Delgen the Bannermen. So. Apparently it's the same bus. Is it? Oh, yes. right. <laughs> <laughs> Behind the scenes facts fans, yes. Wow. Right. <laughs> Spiffing. Oh, I, mm. the quarry is the same one they do, they later go back to for survival. And I have been there. Right. There's uh. Warmwell Quarry in Dorset. Okay. And uh, my, we were on holiday in the area the following mm-hmm. year and I made my parents go and show me it so actually maybe I'm closer to the whiz kid than I <laughs> like to think I was uh, and did it look exactly like it did in Doctor Who they wouldn't let us in oh. <laughs> no, but they let us into the entrance right? and uh, so that it wasn't a completely wasted visit my dad asked if he could buy uh, some some rocks for his for his rockery back home oh. so he, he they said yes, and we got out of the car, and he picked up, you know, half a dozen quite nice bits of sandstone, put them mm-hmm. in the boot, and then he had to drive into the weigh bridge to have them weighed, which is normally <laughs> for, you know, twenty <laughs> wheel lorries. Mm. And they they weighed these rocks. Oh, that's the how they do they're it. Ba- okay. They barely made, yeah, they barely made mm. an impression and charged him with a fiver or something, and and we went. <laughs> Did you enjoy that anecdote? You're not cutting that. Yeah. That's gold. No, no, <laughs> I, 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 gold. That, is, that is it's absolute gold. That I mean, it, this, this is this is how you, you you ended up in your rockery with a piece of Doctor Who. Um, yeah, yeah must, must oh, you what? still have the stones? Are they still they've, moved, yeah. they've moved since then. I wonder if they're still there. Yeah, I might do. go and steal them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they mean more to me than the new owners of yes. 88 Canterbury Road. Yeah. <laughs> Don't broadcast uh, that. Otherwise, we'll just get yeah. No, Phil my, Morris will be around anymore. there with a pickup truck. With a pickup truck. <laughs> uh, very good. Okay, well, let's um, uh, l- l- let's move on while we have the opportunity, and look at our second story then, which is Tooth and Claw. Mm-hmm. Picked, of course, with my characteristic lack of imagination, because we've got um, vamp—it's uh, not vampires—we've got werewolves <laughs> in, in, in both of them. Written by Russell T. Davis and directed by I, th- I think it's is it Eros you pronounce that but but it looks like Euros Lynn, mm. who of course was sort of semi omnipresent in that in that early era of the show as a director, mm-hmm. and again I mean inevitably a story that I haven't seen since transmission I mean oddly it's <laughs> funny because 
one or other of you was I think was was it Giles so, saying how this was a story that you really enjoyed at the time but hadn't hadn't watched much since mm-hmm. and, and and similarly for me I mean Tooth and Claw I thought was a fantastic story in uh, in 2006 when I saw it and I enjoyed it so much that I waited another 15 years to see it again <laughs> uh, and you know I have to say I, I enjoyed it uh, this time as well uh, uh, but you know it may well be 2036 before I see it again who knows <laughs> let's make a date for it. Mm. <laughs> I think it'll be a lot sooner before I watch this. I remember it being great at the time, but yeah, I, d- I don't know why it's it's slightly diminished in my memory, I guess, and just merged into the run-of-the-mill stories. And I found this, you know, brilliant. I, I thought this was really, you know, firing on all cylinders kind of stuff, and uh, really, really enjoyed rewatching it and thought, what a brilliantly put together. 45 minutes of TV, really. It does pretty much everything you want from a Doctor Who story in the modern in the modern age. It's just and the the pacing is is perfect. We should come on to that. the The only other thing I was going to say about watch, watching it, uh, it's a, leads to sort of slight discussion that probably the last time I saw this, it's the kind of it's the kind of story I probably have ended up watching on BBC Three. Back in the days when we had wall to wall every night of the week, repeats of Doctor Who just going round and round mm. in a circle, and when I was thinking about that, you know, I suddenly went off on the thing about is that a reason? Is the demise of BBC Three has that had an effect on the fact that Doctor Who has lost its cultural currency to some extent? Because the the fact that you could be flipping through mm. the channels and and find it on every night of the week pretty much and you, you'd you'd find it and people could stumble across it as opposed to and yes it's we, we know it's all there on on iPlayer and you know even mm. the classic series is there on Britbox and so on but for anything like that you've got to go and you know you've got to go and hunt it out yes and you know the the idea that you would just be flipping through channels and there was Doctor Who on pretty much on demand any time you wanted it and without having to make any more effort than changing channels yeah, I, th- I think that probably did play a big role in embedding it so mm. much in the national psyche in those first five or six years. Because it carried on into the uh, 11th Doctor era, didn't it? I can't really remember when BBC Three got canned or started to reduce. And uh, I mean, relatively it. recently, wasn't it? More, it was sort of, sort of about 2015, maybe, mm. or something like that. But yeah, I don't think you get a Doctor Who so much then. Doctor Who probably stopped before then. Mm. Yeah. It's a good thought. Good mm. thought. Paul? Uh, oh, I, yes. Uh, I agree. It's terrific, isn't it? Very good. <laughs> I think what's... That goes without question. What's interesting about it is that it probably wouldn't exist if things had gone according to plan, would it? Mm. I mean, I guess for a lot of people, it's as good as it is because it's Russell doing something else. There were a lot of people mm. who, while they admired his show-running skills and you know enjoyed his episodes... The ones he wrote himself weren't always to their tastes, and they tended to be those rare examples of him doing someone else, doing a Moffat or doing a Robert Holmes or doing a Dix or whatever, hmm. which tended to be more to people's tastes, and that then they would see, oh, blimey, you can write after all, these these fools would say. <laughs> and I think it was one of those. You know, is it Russell doing trad? But he's only writing this because the brief he gave to somebody else, they failed to uh, to stick to, did they not? Hmm. I'll ask you later if anyone knows who that was. Do we know? But we know that this um, this shopping list of ingredients, this rather eccentric list, Queen Victoria, werewolf, warrior, monks, was that Hmm. it? 
<laughs> yeah, I believe so. The writer, yeah. the writer didn't just have who we approached didn't just have trouble fitting these together, but um, completely bailed on the whole idea and produced something else. I think mm. lacking one or possibly Queen Victoria's eye or something weird. So lacking two of the three <laughs> requirements. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, then he um, he showed his mettle by stepping into the breach at the last minute and churning this out. Mm. Turning out something that looked like it had been slaved over mm. with love and care, which is his trick, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The clever man. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I mean, Charles, you were talking about the pacing, mm. and, and I, I think it's interesting because it's 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 very obviously very different from the classic series in you know in, in terms of it being half the length. I guess they don't even try to do any what what you'd have done in 90 minutes they yeah it it, it very much of the new series but it it feels like they get exactly the right amount out of that 45 minutes that's available Mm. and and it feels like a whole story it doesn't feel like it's rushed at any point it Mm. feels it feels like we get all the stuff that we need you know and and, and i suppose a lot of it is about building up the suspense but it yeah i I felt like i got a full story in that length of time and and he'd sort of hit on this is how you tell a Doctor Who story in the modern era. I think so. That was my big obsession the, in the in the early days of New Who. That they were showing us so many different ways to do a 45-minute story, and I wasn't always convinced they were doing it hmm. to it the best way you can. Sometimes there'd be too much build-up, sometimes too much outro. Just hmm. you know, taking the opportunity to cut out your, your episode 3 padding and run around it isn't... isn't necessarily enough this one is mm. one of the few that really feels to me like you have got a, an, as you said an entire story condensed like a mm. mini part one mini part two three and four mm. it's all there nothing is too rushed or too drawn out which wasn't always the case with every mm. every mm. 50 minute story you know what i realized watching you know watching it and i, I just I was thinking about the pacing and the werewolf transformation the werewolf breaks out Exactly at the halfway mark, twenty-two, twenty-two minutes something, and mm-hmm. I just thought it's just this perfect balance. You have all that suspense, and then you just change the story at your turning point. Yeah, and then it does these handbrake turn kind of things, and that's got to be partly down to you know the direction as much as anything. The fact that it, with a plum, it can go from running down corridors, being chased by the werewolf, you know, within ten seconds into the Here's the spooky bit where we're we're inside the room, and the wibble's stalking us on the outside. And yeah. You don't you don't feel it jar. You just go with it, and it's mm. and you're thinking this is ticking off so many things that you want to see. Yeah, so many of the bits you expect in a in a ninety minute action action movie kind of thing, as well as in a in a mm. trad Doctor Who story. Uh, but it's just doing them with the absolute maximum economy of timing, and yeah, yes. <laughs> and you, yeah, and you think, and that, yeah, that pre-credit sequence and everything like that, it hits the ground running, and it got me thinking now about whether or not the werewolf transformation would happen at the halfway point of an old-fashioned story. Would it be at the end of episode two? It doesn't feel like most Doctor Who stories had a really great episode two cliffhanger, but um, I can't think of a really good analogy to it. So I'm, mm. I'm going to stick with my belief that it follows the pacing mm. of a classic story, just with the entire thing. On overdrive, I'm trying to think of hor- horror fang rock. I well, it it mm. reminded me of horror fang rock mostly. Yeah, that's why I invoked the name of the blessed dicks. Mm. 
you often have that that the first episode is the exploring the world yeah well yeah you have a moment of peril sometimes you reveal the monster at the end of episode one and then mm. you have the greater peril at the end of episode two and then you have the find out what the plan is is typically the episode three cliffhanger i think that justifies the or the running man in episode three I you and that's completely back of the envelope kind of thing whereas in this case we know the we know the plan right yeah. from the outset interestingly enough the monks tell us the whole plan obviously there's no and there's no attempt interestingly to disguise who the werewolf is because it's the person in the box mm. with a werewolf you could go more than at horror fang rock roost and have mm. yes lock yourselves in the house batten down the hatches mm. well no okay you could do the literal thing which yes. makes horror fang, horror fang rock genius where you yes. think you locked it outside and it's on the inside. Mm. Gets yeah. me every time. But more to the yeah. point, it could be there's a bunch of, there's a dozen of us now here. Who is it? Because mm. they are, uh, what's the word? Metamorphic. So, mm. could, but I, so is the fact that they don't go down that route just because that's the one thing you couldn't really do justice to in 50 minutes. You haven't got enough time to have a mystery about who the werewolf is. You really just have to get on with it, don't you, here? You'd have to, yeah. if you if you wanted to make that part of the story, the uh, mystery, you would then have to sacrifice something else. So I think it works much better the way we are. Either that, or, or it's a two-parter or something. And, and again, it, it, yes. you know, it doesn't feel like there's enough for that. No. Yeah, I think I think it's a choice of what type of story do you want to do you want to tell. Because I mean, cause considering the limitations of of CGI, this is a very impressive action story. Mm. Yeah, I bet if you add up the number of seconds it's on screen for, it isn't very much. But they they mm. were very good at using these things sparingly. Apparently, the mill pitched to RTD that they said they wanted to do, they could do a werewolf, and this was one of the things. And I think because they'd done with Harry Potter or something, right? Apparently, they they more or less gave gave Russell a list of shots that they could, you know, like some more or less off the shelf shots that could be done relatively easily and of course there's a lot of that um point of view camera stuff which yeah. neatly gets us out of the you know mm. but it has two it has two effects it saves us seeing the werewolf and it and it saves us seeing saves us having to cut away from gore and yeah. um leaves, leaves stuff to our imagination about what the what the werewolf is doing to people i've somehow managed to avoid saying so far that i'm technically very very afraid of werewolves mm. i mean well i say that I mean, it's been a long time since I met one. But as a child, <laughs> as a child discovering the a copy of the Pan Thirteenth Pan Book of Horror under yeah. under a bed at home, which has an extremely unpleasant looking well from the front. Um, mm. Look at Google it, everybody. It might okay. not be the Thirteenth, but it's something like that. That sent the willies up me. It was under this bed, you see, and I crawled under there and uh, and saw it in the dark. And uh, mm. is, have you found it? <laughs> I'm just trying to find and. And then, uh, and I left it there. But somehow, I then became rather fixated on the fact that it was, this book was still there under this bed. Hmm. And I was drawn to it, while also, hmm. it's a strange thing. <laughs> so I have the residual memory of being terrified by wells, but I wasn't terrified by Mags. No. Yeah, she's still, you know, she's still uh, the very attractive Jessica Martin, even when she's got her teeth in, and. Uh, and I wasn't scared <laughs> by by this one because I'm very old. But so um, I don't know. Do you think is it is it scary enough to get the kids, or would they just think 
It is indeed number 13, by the way. I've just well, good. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's lucky. Because yeah. oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. If I Google it now, I'm alone in the room. <laughs> it might still do it for me. It's... Yeah. It's a bit freaky because the Wibbles wearing a, a piece of wearing a suit and tie. Oh, right. Is that the thing that... Ah! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I th I think the werewolf works. It, do it it doesn't actually matter that it's a werewolf. I mean, it, well, I suppose it matters that it's a werewolf because it's the moon that activates it mm. in in the middle, and then they've so, you know that they they turn that energy against it at the end. But I mean, it, it's established that it's that it's a menace and that it's strong enough and powerful enough to rip people to shreds mm. without, I guess, without showing too much gore. So, so I, th I think that I think that takes it through. So, regardless of of how well you understand what a well werewolf is, and the fact that maybe that other people could become werewolves by being bitten, they don't really make a massive amount of that during the course of the story. I think it's 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 obviously enough of a threat that you're pretty scared by it, whether you're into werewolves or not. I think. Hmm. Yes, that transformation or the the infectiousness of it only comes up really in the context of of what their plan is with queen victoria doesn't it you don't have yes. it don't have it passed on to anybody else which could have been a i guess could have been an effective thing if you had a question of whether rose had been bitten or something like that might have been hmm. might have been quite fun but i was just thinking about other influences and obviously the the monks i guess is is influenced by um crouching tiger and yeah and yeah. various other you know obviously Hong Kong big actually, at the time yeah, weren't they those they mm. certainly were, and the other thing I thought of because the the transformation is very company of wolves. I thought from back in the day, right? Yes. Now that was a movie that always used to freak me out. I <clears> should <throat> have mentioned uh, American Wolf in London. I think I yeah. happened across that at a tender age, mm. and yeah. that was <laughs> <laughs> they. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't that young, but it was, uh, mm. <laughs> I well, was just I mean, naive certainly... enough for that to freak me out. Well, in the eighties, that that was pretty horrific. I mean, I don't, mm. I haven't seen it since, so I couldn't really comment on whether it still looks horrific. But certainly, it was it was realistic enough back then to, to give mm. me the willies. I would say. <laughs> but I wonder whether there's a bit of influence from Brotherhood of the Wolf as well, the French mm. movie about the Beast of Gévaudan, which was looking at it. That was two thousand and one, so it's you know potentially you know it was around and it was quite popular at the time, and is a is a bit more of an action movie take on the on the werewolf genre, but also French. So, um, so it's, is that interesting combination of sensibilities there, I guess. Mm. Also with these monks, there's, there's mention of the Glen of St. Catherine. It doesn't sort of describe what kind of monastery it is. Mm. And, and presumably it's with that kind of thing, stuff going on, it's a, it's Buddhist rather than Christian, but I don't know. It, it's, it's not, I guess what I'm expecting when they talk about, monks in Scotland in the Victorian era mm. although no. dissolution of the monasteries maybe it is, who knows yes, yeah now bearing in mind that I think this story is, is a, you know, a mini masterpiece and a great example yeah. of of new classic non-trad who, in terms of the pacing and the violence and the death and the amount of death and tension mm. it's interesting that only one of the killings happens suddenly and, and randomly and as a surprise and that's very good. Um, when uh, the rather overconfident Laird chap gets dragged up into the ceiling like Brian Glover in Alien 3, mm. which is 
may not be the only Zelda that's ever happened, but it, it seemed to me to be riffing on the only good bit from mm. <laughs> Alien 3. <laughs> but then the, the other two, so you could have easily followed up with more of that, mm. or indeed chasing people down. Who aren't you know aren't running as fast as the world? But what we actually get is the remaining two deaths are noble self sacrifices. Yeah. Mm. Which uh, you long time listeners may remember, I am unaccountably not a fan of, because I generally find when it's used as the big climax of a story, often it just makes me roll my eyes, and this mm. is extremely yeah. well written. And when it's midway through a story, I just tend to find it a bit contrived. Mm-hmm. Did you really have to? Was there no other way out? It's, yeah. And I think the fact there are two of these, the second one, when the head of the is nicely done because the mm. head of the household gets to say, my wife will remember me now as a hero. So that's good. There's a character mm. thing for him. But the chief of the Redcoats just mm. choosing mm. to... I mean, both times, frankly, they turn to the rest of the cast and say, <laughs> I'll buy you some time. I know I'm not going to make... Yes, and then they stand but you'll, you'll never su- you'll never survive. Mm. You'll, well, I'll buy you some time. Well, how much time do you buy them? Ten seconds, half a minute, two minutes? Mm. I mean, I don't know. It's I'm not the fan of it once, but it's it happens yes. twice, and um, yeah, that seems a bit odd to me. Just and is it, it is up. it the se- is it the second time that Rose, or is it the first time? Well, or is it both times that Rose stands there and watches what apparently watches what happens? The the controversial and bit with some viewers therefore wastes all the time that has been bought. <laughs> after you know Captain McSoldier has mm. has sacrificed himself, indeed she it, it buys him so much time that she's able to stand there watching the entire thing mm. before the Doctor drags her into the room, locks the door, and then you get the mildly controversial fact that ten mm. seconds later, oh it's not actually, it's two minutes later. I thought it was immediately afterwards that Doctor and Rose start giggling. Mm. And being a couple of um, teenagers yes. in love, we do then get a quite a long, nice, tense bit before mm. when they realise they're safe temporarily. Mm. The tension is broken, and they start to giggle about it with the whole "tell you what though, werewolf" bit, mm. which now, which of course is isn't just a throwaway thing. It's that point which cements Victoria's distrust of mm, the Doctor, yes. which comes back at the end. But is it good? Is it is it what we want to see? Regardless of the fact that it is it has a payoff, should it be there? Does it make the, us think less of the Doctor and or Rose? That they have somehow overlooked seeing this man ripped to shreds and, and are still mm. more excited by the fact that there was a well they've made a wealth and could tick that off. It does. And of course what, the payoff itself is only there isn't even a payoff for this story. It's mm. a payoff to set up Torchwood. So that's mm. that's why yeah. I ask should any of it be there? Because it's taken quite a lot of room. And it's not necessarily relevant to this particular adventure. So here's here's my second link between the two stories, then, because I think in both stories we get this sense of the Doctor and his companion on holiday, as a pair of tourists mm. walking through, you know, quite quite a horrific story in both cases, but you know they're they're sort of on holiday while everyone else is getting slaughtered in various different ways, and. You know, at the end of it, they, they don't seem to be particularly chastened by what's happened to everybody else. In both mm-hmm. cases, the Doctor and Ace and, 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 and uh, the Doctor and Rose kind of disappear off in the sunset, sort of feeling you know, quite happy that they've, perhaps happy they've survived. But also, you know, that was a kind of an entertaining little um, uh, sojourn and where are we off to next sort of thing. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a slightly uneven tone compared... With, I mean, there's less. There's certainly less death in this one than, the, than than there is in the previous one, 
but yes, it is it, it, it is a little bit jarring. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, it's inappropriate, but it's meant, yeah, it's, but it's, <laughs> but it's meant to be inappropriate, and we're meant to think less of less hmm. of them for it. And I, I just made a note that it, it actually pulls off a remarkable feat of making Brie Victoria the audience identification character. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're on her side about it. You know, yes. At this point, Actually, we're, yeah. we're seeing it through her eyes. You know, the, the hell are these people like? <laughs> I think at the time, among a certain section of the audience, I just bring this up for the historical record, I didn't necessarily agree, but Rose was quite unpopular at this point because mm. you know, giggly, flirty Rose is enjoying hanging around with dishy new doctor and being quite smug and what have you seemed to rub a lot of people out the wrong way hmm. and I, I don't know I think some people thought that this story was starting an arc about the doctor and being too overconfident and not taking things seriously enough and it, and it isn't really is it, it just is paid off by the torture moment hmm. although oddly enough, the fact that people were imagining such a thing presages what happens with Tennant in Series 4 and beyond yeah. when he genuinely does get a bit kind of, it it's sort of cut across, isn't it? Because the, ne- the, the you know the next story saw the Sarah Jane one, where you know Rose gets to see what happens to the companion in the long term. Yeah. And the girl in the fireplace, where flirty tenant develops a, di- a different attraction. So y- y- I guess this is the high point, perhaps, for her. It is an interesting arc across those three stories, and it's only half. It's half deliberate and half accidental because I think the yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I think the, the juxtaposition is school reunion and girl in the fireplace, which have a, quite a different take really on that same idea, was completely accidental because they didn't know what Moffat was going to write. Hmm, but it yeah. it all works. It all came out in the wash. <laughs> I did actually find, I'll be honest, uh, slight negative here. Rose quite annoying in this, particularly <laughs> in her attempts to get Queen Victoria to say we are not amused. It's a nice joke. Yes. It's a nice joke on paper. And I yeah. don't think it's badly written, but I've got to be honest, <laughs> Billy Piper completely kills it. The strange yeah. way she plays it, it's so smug. Hmm. I don't think it's supposed to be. She just, no. is, she just comes across as incredibly rude. Mm, yes. <laughs> and she's got this slappable expression on her face. So it's all... Um, <laughs> it doesn't quite work. Yeah. No. <laughs> Although, again, I, again, of course, I can see Russell writes on so many levels. You are supposed to find it endearing up until the last moment when it's flipped on its head and Queen Victoria and the whole turns the whole thing rather dark. I don't know. It's a minefield discussing these because I always feel the writer is several steps ahead of us. It feels also to me that we get um, we get David Tennant speaking in something close to his natural accent in, in chunks of this and and, and it it feels to me that he's considerably less annoying when he's Scottish than, than uh, <laughs> when he's being the Mockney Doctor that, mm. uh, for some reason, Russell's decided that we had to have. Yes, he, I can see that he is a bit more natural. I was thinking when he dropped back into his own, sorry, into the Doctor's own accent again, I was thinking, why do people always call this Mockney? I haven't got a, <laughs> I haven't got a problem with it. But then again, it's not your accent, is it? So maybe you can't tell a real... Mm. A real uh, Southern English accent from a fake one. I don't know. I don't know that it's what Tennant's doing is it, mimicking any particular region of the, of the UK, but it's a consistent ac- accent in itself. Yeah, I mean, it, so, it's not awful. It's it's not Dick Van Dyke or anything. No, I mean, I'm not I'm not suggesting that. But it just it it it, it just feels that 
it's sort of pandering, isn't it? It's it's taking someone who is who is a good actor who has a perfectly intelligible accent, mm. and then for reasons that are just unimaginable, turning him in, into something else. I mean, it, funny, isn't it? And it's fifteen years ago. It wouldn't ha- no, it wouldn't happen now, would it? They'll let any old accent on. <laughs> 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 Well, they let they let Professor Capaldi uh, be Scottish, yeah, and they made a feature of it. And he, I mean, his certainly his accent is much stronger. Uh, yeah. I believe even the current Doctor has an accent. Um, so you've told me in the past. It, it, so the it's pa- barely past. it's barely it's barely discernible for those of us um, north <laughs> of Watford. But I wonder yeah, what so, the uh, new Doctor's accent is going to be. It's very exciting, <laughs> isn't it? I try not to get too excited. It's Indeed, to goodness. Uh, he said, sounding <laughs> pa- Pakistani pa- Welsh. Pa- I was going to say Pakistani. Uh, well, who knows? <coughs> I'm going to come come back. I assume, judging by the death, deafening silence, agreed with my early attempt to raise this topic. Nobody knows who the writer was that Russell approached to write this story originally, who completely bonds it up. Has it ever? Do you do you even reckon, remember that anecdote? I remember the anecdotes. Right. And so it's been much rumoured, but I don't think it's ever been mm. confirmed. Okay. Mm. Well, listeners, do tweet us if you know, if you have any educated yes, guesses, mm. or even if you have any uh, inside knowledge that will allow us to put this onto bed. We've got this interesting aspect in the in the plot about the the father of of Sir Robert and Prince Albert having worked together somehow in advance. They 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 kind of sussed this was going to happen. Mm. And so they've they've put the device. I mean, I mean, they haven't. They haven't. The plan isn't so well developed that they bothered to actually tell anybody <laughs> what the device is for. I mean, Prince Albert has has, has got Queen Victoria carrying the Koh-i-Noor diamond around and and precisely polished so it fits in the right place. But again, they've neglected to tell anyone that that's what's needed. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I suppose there's the, there's the nice bit because at the start there's the discussion about. She still kind of feels like he's protecting from beyond the grave, or there's some mm. kind. Of, I don't. I forget the precise phrasing, and then in the end, of course, he does protect her from beyond the grave mm. because of this plan. But yeah, in, interesting. I'm not. I don't think I've got much more to say than on it than that. Uh, I would just add that the the um, the title Tooth and Claw comes from. Well, it's, it's best known for. Although I think the phrase was around before, but it comes from a Tennyson poem. Uh, Nature Red in Tooth and Claw comes from right. Comes okay. comes from the Tennyson poem In, in Memoriam A H H, which is the one he famously wrote, or bereft at the loss of his his friend um, Arthur. Is it Hallam? At a young age, and apparently Queen Victoria did find this. Apparently Russell picked up on this because Queen Victoria found took a lot of solace in this poem right. when she was in mourning. Hmm. But yes, it's it's nice that you you know. It's rattling along, and then you know, and then suddenly I thought, yeah, at the moment when we came to that thing about the Cohen Hall, which I'd forgotten, I thought, oh god, it's clever. So it's also a character, you know, here's a character touch, you know, just when you think, okay, it's all rattling along, and we've, you know, we're just getting this plot that's locking itself together and just getting everything, all the pieces in place, and then you get the fact it's a character beat for for the Queen, at the same time, he's a clever bugger, is Russell. Pauline Collins, we haven't really mentioned, but she's yes, she's great, yeah. isn't she? And mm-hmm. I do like the fact that it riffs riffs a lot on the whole the many assassinations of Queen Victoria mm. kind of you know, kind of thing, which is all these 
various attempts on her life, which um, oh, I was quite uh, I was quite familiar with it. I've been vaguely, you know, it's quite interesting, and I, I like the fact that she's <laughs> she's the one that obviously um we don't see it on screen, but she um offs Father Angelo, doesn't she? Yes. Well, uh, yes. yes. What a badass! Quite exactly, a badass Queen Victoria. That's what we like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yes, years before the pirates and an adventurous scientist came along as well. Although I suppose the book was probably it's got a fairly badass Queen Victoria as well, hasn't it? Mm. Sorry, that was a complete aside. Um, We're running dry on this because it's a good one, and there's mm. and as we've established, we're so mean spirited. There's never anything <laughs> to say when something's good. I think the only other the other interesting thing to say is this whole thing. So apparently the version I've now read, because there was a lot of speculation about, oh, you know, is is the thing with was Victoria bitten by the werewolf? Yeah, and there, there was speculation at the time about, oh, did is that what gives rise to the alternate Earth of Rise of the Cybermen? And that's that sort of steampunk ethos hmm. version that they go to in go to in that story. And so was that. A, and apparently he did toy with the idea of having her very definitively and possibly even killed by the werewolf yeah at the end and you know, with the idea that this would spin off into being the other the other universe but mm. but then rode back from it feeling like that was just going to be too complicated for the casual viewer to yeah and it's so yeah. a great shame because that would have worked it. perfectly wouldn't it because of course the main thing that people never think about with alternative universe is where these diverge from ours mm. because uh, generally they have that's the point isn't it that they've Mm. diverged at a particular point yeah. and that would have worked perfectly if, I'm sure if you did it now you could trust the audience to uh, to follow that mm. Mm. I suppose yeah. he, he has his cake and eats it with the issue isn't isn't she thing I guess to some extent. yeah but that's just for a slightly lame joke so it's mm. not it's not really but, yeah, but you can still fan yeah fansplain it <laughs> I guess it, it feels to me that it would have it would have made a better arc, but a worse story if he got rid of Queen Victoria in that way. Yeah, It's a better ending for this story, the way that it goes. Mm. Here, have we said much about Silver Bullets? Neither story, neither these werewolf, uh, supposed werewolf stories go into Silver Bullets at all, do they? No. There's a mention of it in this one, but they haven't got any. <laughs> <laughs> I, think there's, I, think. I think there's a mention in, in Greatest Show just that Captain Cook... Says something to Mags right. about you'd have ended up dead hmm. with a silver bullet in you, or something. Well, like that's that. all right then. I... In one of his passing, one of his passing, many many passing heavy hints, just in case <laughs> the audience doesn't get that the um, the girl with the punky hair, <laughs> the, the girl with the punky hair from the planet Vulpana is going to be <laughs> dressed in rags. Is going to turn out to be a werewolf. Mm. And, and there's there's a, there's a very nice line in this where the the werewolf talks about. The person who inhabited the body first, he just says, I, I carved out his soul and sat in his heart. I mean, mm. I'm not sure I necessarily know what that means, but it, it's it's quite a chilling line, and particularly the way it's being delivered. Mm. It is. Well spotted. And uh, Russell T. Davis, another, another nice line about discussing about how books make great weapons. Mm. I mean, I, I guess that's a sort of, that's almost like a Terence Dick sort of a line that, that mm. um, encouraging kids to read. Mm-hmm. A running gag about um, Doctor Asseng being rude and then ask, asking Rose, am I being rude again? Hmm. How many stories is that in? I didn't remember that at all. No. Is it that... made me th- instantly think of Capaldi. But, um... <laughs> mm, yeah. I mean, was there any of that in his first story? Did it peter out 
here <sighs> for good. Hmm. Rhetorical question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't remember. Well, I mean, you know, in his mm. first story, he knows second chances he's that kind of man, except he mm, then isn't. Yes. Now he's rude, except mm. he then isn't. Well, you know, it takes him a while to find their feet. Mm. He found his feet in the performance, but clearly the writing <laughs> took some time to catch up. <laughs> he's, I mean, he is quite a different character, isn't he, at this stage? I mean, I mean, appearance-wise, he, lo- he looks quite different from even sort of later in the season. Looked very young. I mean, I, I suppose he was about thirty-five, so that probably uh, is quite young to, to someone of my age now. But the whole essence, I suppose, of the of the Tenth Doctor seems to sort of take root later. I think in that in, in this series, but not so much at this point. Mm. Same though. Does the Mistletoe thing have any grounding in actual legends or werewolf mythology? Mm. That's a question. So it's because it's very clear. It's I know I've not found anything, but it's um, it's very mm. clever. I think it's, it's it's neat the way. Yeah, it's it's again. It's just one of these, very neat little plot points that, mm. that you you think okay, you could have you could have three completely different things going on in order to and the, the fact he the fact he says okay, so the monks don't get attacked by the werewolf because they wear the mistletoe around yeah. their necks. They leave some of it in the kitchen where the lady, her ladyship can find it and mix up a potion that can then be deployed at the exact precise moment it's needed to fend off the werewolf. Uh, the werewolf leaves them alone in the kitchen because the mistletoe is lying on the... because the monks have left some mistletoe lying on the table. Mm. And then you have the, the walls of the study have been have been lined with mistletoe. And it's just, oh yeah, or, or um, polished with mistletoe oil, if such a thing exists. So I, I just think it's... <laughs> I don't know. Well, the doctor I think gets I... a nice bit of scientific <coughs> baffle gab to try and mm. gloss over it, doesn't he? Yeah, but I think it's very, it's very clever. It's very economical that it that you use. You find one one little bit of storytelling, you know, one MacGuffin, I guess, and then use mm. it in all those different ways at all those different little little points for what you want to do in the story. I think mm. it's very neat. In terms of of further links between the two, so you'll probably tell me I'm stretching a bit with this, but I, there's so you know, clearly the the circus has been subverted by the gods of Ragnarok, and similarly, I suppose you could say the will, werewolf has subverted the apparently peaceful monks into this sort of you know fighting force. Perhaps mm-hmm. uh, I guess we don't know what the um, purpose of the monks were were before the. Um, the werewolf came along, but it, it feels like they, that they've been mm. whatever their, their mission was. It's been subverted. Yes, because they've ended up worshiping it, haven't they? As yeah. a god, Lupus Deus Est. There's a bit of Latin, <laughs> that even, a bit of Latin that even Jacob Rees Mogg can probably make sense of. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, and, and and I suppose you could also take that a little bit further and say that the. The monks and the clowns, I suppose, play a similar sort of role in each story. Of you necessarily think of a bunch of monks as being a a, a physical threat, and you wouldn't necessarily think of the of the clowns as being a threat, but of course they've become one in both of these stories. Mm. And beyond that, and the tenuous nature that werewolves are at the center of both, because they aren't really at the center of the greatest show in the galaxy, we've got the older female character who's unimpressed with the Doctor. So, but 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 that is that's definitely stretching. <laughs> It's the Peggy Mount Pauline Collins yes, link that we've access. been dying for all evening. Uh, any other, any further thoughts, or should we, should we put it to bed? 
Okay, well, look, thanks, thanks both of you for your for your thoughts on these two stories. These two stories that apparently had only a very tenuous connection, and probably, in fact, only have a very tenuous connection. <laughs> although I've I've tenuously suggested that there are stronger connections between the two, perhaps. So, so yes, yeah, look, thanks for that. Thanks for those of you who've listened through to our musings. If you enjoy what we do in terms of, of these podcasts, there's plenty more where this came from, um, and hopefully in a similar place to where you found it. This is, this, this is one of, of perhaps you know, 50 or 60 others that, that we've got on the site. Uh, if you like what you've heard, please leave a review or, or a star rating on, on one of the review sites again that helps other people to find us and do subscribe and keep listening because it gives us some sense that it's worth uh, doing this on on a regular basis that there are people actually listening but i guess i mean one other thing i'd say is thanks to to our listeners and 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 we we're now we've certainly seen an uptick in in listening in the course of the last year Uh, and yeah we're getting thank you we are getting good 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 listening figures and we've within the last month we've had our our twenty thousandth download of something who, which is well, well something they're, astonishing, they're really, considering where we started. <laughs> a number to conjure with. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to imagine that every one of those has been listened to, but it's, it's it's nice to imagine that a fair few have. Good. So now we need to go off and think about what the hell we're going to pair with Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, funnily enough, I did think uh, at some point as I'm watching it that maybe I should have paired Tooth and Claw with Abominable Snowmen. But anyway, hey ho. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh well, you know, there's a parallel universe out there, possibly created by the death of Crimson, <laughs> in which we'd we've made those different pairings, and who knows how Indeed. entertaining they were. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. Okay. Yeah, in that case, I think it's, I think it's time to, uh, to to say farewell to each other and to our listeners. So, uh, goodbye all. Auf Wiedersehen. Arrivederci. We've got this here. We've got this here. Sketch that I wrote. Yep. If it could be described as such. Sketch um, I haven't read it, so this is going to be fun. This will test my sight reading skills. Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, I haven't given you all that big a part. Oh, thanks so. very much. <laughs> I can do you some scenes from Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah, I'll, I'll bear it in mind. Who, um, are you, who are you playing again? Don Pedro. Yeah, right. Denzel okay. Washington. Excellent. We'll go through it once and we'll see how we get on with it. And if we need to, we can always do it a second time. Okay? Why yep. haven't you given me many lines? Oh, God, actors. You've got the second best part in it. Okay. Am I, who am I being? I know my Four. place. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, here goes. <clears throat> it's all been a bit touch and go this week. Uh. Yeah, why am I saying that? <laughs> uh, but with me to discuss... So, okay. With so, me to discuss... We're, hmm? So we're a bit touch and cloth this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Carol. No, you I... worked I, out I, why you were going to say it. Oh, well, I can... I have worked out why I was going to say it. Right. I just don't really think it needs saying.